Dotnet Rocks episode 975 with guest Udi Daham. Recorded Tuesday, April 8th, 2014. Thanks very much. Welcome back to Dotnet Rocks. It's Carl and Richard starting your week right. What's yes, up, my sir. friend? I am, you know having a great time you know what's happened to me what i had this i have this run in europe that ends at and norwegian developers conference which right. we're going to be together for sure but two weeks before i actually have to be in europe as well yep. and my younger daughter katie is already off of school so she's coming with me for a week of it isn't that cool you might even see her in oslo that is wild i'm really excited about it it's taking some negotiating you know to actually get her to commit but she decided she wants to come so we're gonna have some fun together in other news i'll be in orlando with my daughter he- is she coming with you down to Dev Intersection? She is. That's fantastic. Yeah, and Karen Mangicotti's daughter. Oh, okay. Well, that kept, that was not going to create too much it's chaos. It's going to be a notice. little bit of chaos for me. Hey, enough about our personal lives. Yes. I have something really cool, again, for Better Know Framework. Well, you've been on a roll. So roll that crazy music. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? In honor of our guest, Udi Dehan, who's, uh, you know, all service bus all the time, Nothing goes together with service bus like SignalR. That is true. I would totally agree with you. Yeah. And um, so in, I went looking for a good SignalR intro that wasn't a chat, you know, because... It, yeah, because it, that's it's almost cliche now, isn't it? It's so cliche. It's yeah. so... Last year. No. <laughs> anyway. No. So uh, if you go to tinyurl.com slash reporting. This guy's blog is uh, Samuel Jack is his name, and he's got a blog called Functional Fun, and he's got a three-part blog post uh, showing how to report progress of long-running operations on web pages using SignalR. Nice. Isn't that cool? Because that's something that you always want to do, and nobody does it right. Nobody does it right. So right. you have a long running operation. You want to sit there. You want to watch and see how how it you know how it goes and progresses without boring the user, without you know, and actually giving some meaningful feedback. It, and it's also a great example for SignalR too, because it's something that it'll do really well. That's incredibly hard to do any other way. Right. Exactly. So I I thought this was brilliant. And uh, hats off to Samuel Jack. And he has no idea we're talking about him, but somebody will tell him, I'm sure. (laughs) Good one. I've added it to the show notes, so everybody can go check it out. That's really neat. That is really good. And uh, I'm sure the topic of SignalR will come up with UD later. I bet. But uh, for now, tinyurl.com slash SignalR reporting. Richard, who's talking to us today? Grabbed a comment off of show 820, and that's the one we recorded with Udi back in November of 2012, yep. which is entirely too long ago, but it was uh, the Tallahassee Coat Camp stop, right? All right. When we were on the road trip, back in the good old days. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this comment comes, you know, we were talking about CQRS and all the cool stuff that we talked to with Udi most of the time, at least lately anyway. Uh, and John Stonecash actually says, uh, regarding Udi's comments about unit testing, because as I recall, we talked about unit testing pretty extensively with Udi. Hmm. Uh, I look at the act of unit testing as an excuse to reread the code and make corrections as I construct the test. Mm-hmm. I mean, which is, you know, still sort of a code first model, but now, you know, you're starting to build the tests around it and you make things better. Uh, but just as important, I think that unit testing also serves the purpose of providing assurance that the existing functionality of the code continues to work as new features are added and existing features are refactored. 
A solid set of unit tests coupled with source code allows the team to, quote, try out things with greater confidence. Yes, this is all about resiliency. If we change something to address performance or security and all of the unit tests run, there's a good chance that we have, quote, done no harm. If hmm. multiple unit tests fail, that tells us that more work is needed and even that our approach is just not going to work. And this ongoing feedback is at least as valuable to us as finding bugs in the first place. Yeah. I got no arguments. No. You got any arguments? No. You know, John is, uh, he works with Rocky at, uh, and, and he also did a DNR TV with me back, way back in, uh, when on Code Generation. Brilliant guy. I really like him a lot and I respect his opinions. Well, and I did not select him because of that. I did not know that. You didn't know that. No. I just read this great comment and thought other people should hear it. Mm. So, John, thanks so much for your comment. Uh, appreciate you being a past guest as well. And if you get a hold of us here, we'll get a .NET Rocks mug out to you right away. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or on any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, iOS, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. And those apps are built by Diatom Enterprises. Who'd love to build you an app? Just go to DiatomEnterprises.com. And that brings us to Udi. Udi Dehan, the software simplest, is a recognized .NET expert and a member of both the Microsoft Architects and Technologist Councils. Udi provides clients all over the world with training, mentoring, and high-end architecture consulting services, specializing in service-oriented, scalable, and secure .NET architecture design and web services. He is a member of the International Association of Software Architects, a frequent conference presenter, Dr. Dobbs sponsored expert on web services, SOA and XML, and a regularly published author. Udi can be contacted via his blog, udidahan.com. Welcome back, Udi. Well, thank you. Um, after hearing that big, long intro, I think it's about time I cut out half of it and rewrote the other half. Because you are, after all, the software simplest, so you should simplify. Yes, indeed, I should. Uh, shorter, the better. So what's the other, what's the missing half? Oh, well, th there really wasn't anything about in-service bus in there, was it? Well, no, no. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of been a, a, a big chunk of my life for a while now, so I, I guess I better have something in there about uh, founding that and uh, all the other great work we've been doing in the company around in-service bus. So, yeah. And it is a service bus world. We're just living in it, isn't it? Oh, I don't know if it's a service bus world. I'd say that it's uh, it's an interesting world we're living in. It's a fairly frequently changing world. Mm. Uh, Last time we talked about end service bus, I believe um, there were some new features added to it. But why don't you just bring us back to uh, the whole, you know, 101 of service buses in the in the mm. problems that they solve, and then we'll take it from there. Well, um, so I guess the, the the thing about service bus technology is that uh, it's kind of it's the kind of thing that you don't realize you need, uh, and you, you could probably convince yourself that you, that you don't need it for uh, a fairly long time in most software projects uh, until you you're, you're kind of so far along that. 
your system's just about ready to go into production, and then you run into all sorts of scalability problems and reliability issues. Um, I'd say probably reliability is one of the, the bigger ones that uh, surprise people. Uh, once the system is actually live, you know, whether we're talking about um, ancient web services, WCF or brand new fancy web API type of stuff, um, you know, when you're kind of building a larger orchestration of, you know, services calling services. You know, things start timing out under load and you get these exceptions, connection refused by the remote host mm-hmm. and database deadlocks on you and uh, every time one of those things happen, a traditional HTTP call just kind of blows up and loses uh, all of the data that was passed along. Uh, so those sorts of things, queue-based technology, service bus uh, type technology, uh, plug in there, make sure that you know whatever bad thing is happening to your system, those things tend to happen under load most frequently, uh, that no business data is lost, that the system is able to resume where it left off. And I, I guess that's kind of the, the, yeah. the, the big, the big message that I have for customers. And I kind of like uh, the metaphor, Udi, of, uh, old school networking, you know, and some of the old protocols like NetBIOS, where we were, uh, and I know that Richard knows what I'm talking about, but you know, maybe some developers don't, but in the old school, we would, you know, be sending messages to this computer and then send another message to that computer and then send another message to this computer and to that computer instead of, um, you know, put it, putting in a switch and running TCP IP where we send one message to the switch and, you know, or the router and then it gets distributed from there to all the different computers. And, uh, you know, that, that sort of is a nice metaphor for what a service bus does. It takes the the load of the mini off of the one. Don't you, is that a good way to describe it? Well, definitely. Uh, most service buses support uh, publish subscribe patterns uh, that are ultimately handled asynchronously, meaning that a publisher can fire and forget a message yeah. uh, out onto the service bus or onto a topic and continue doing whatever it was doing before. And then asynchronously and durably and reliably, the, this infrastructure delivers that message to each of the subscribers, which is then able to process that independently of the publisher and independently of all the other subscribers. Right. So, uh, you know, if I kind of were to, to boil that down, it's kind of, you know, it's all the goodness of .NET events, mm. uh, but with, you know, the, the added awesome secret sauce of being asynchronous and durable and reliable yeah. uh, and giving you the scale out benefits and the reliability benefits on top of that. And with, so, with queuing and all of that other good stuff that you can do when you've removed it from the responsibility of the publisher. Yeah. 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 So that's kind of the, 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 the really quick, you know, basic level of what service bus technology provides. But, uh, yeah, we, we, we've been kind of building on and around that and providing more tools. And, uh, because the reality is that while it's fairly easy to get started with, you know, publish subscribe patterns and, and messaging using service bus technologies, uh, you can build uh, a, a fairly meaningful system with, you know, 
five or six publishers and 10 or so subscribers where some subscribers are also publishers and you know you got a web front end and you got batch stuff happening in the back end mm-hmm. it's you know we, we've found in working with with our users that uh what they really want are are two main things the first one is the the ability to actually see what's going on behind the scenes because when you're going to debug a system built this way you're kind of hit by the back end of loose coupling it's that you can't really just very simply set a breakpoint and step through you know again and again and again and again because well it's asynchronous Mm -hmm. Uh, so while it's great from a production perspective from a scalability perspective when you want to debug something when you know the system's not working the right way uh, having some visualization, and that's one of the recent things that we've built into the platform, is something that feeds into uh, you know all of your in-service bus endpoints, emits audit messages, so everything that's flowing in your system kind of gets centralized to one central queue. Yeah. Off of that, we put that in a database with a whole bunch of metadata. So that we can visualize, you know, okay, the process started at this machine, which sent this command, which arrived at that machine, which published this event, which went to this other machine that did request response with this other thing, which went over there and published an event, and that subscriber did that. And it just lays out that that whole graph of invocations for you in a nice visual way. So you can kind of see, you know, does my whiteboard diagram of how I thought the system is supposed to work actually correspond to what it's actually doing? Uh, and that makes a huge difference for people to, to really understand how their system's running. Now, these are these are some features that uh, exist in end service bus that you were talking about now. So we've built you know a whole other set of uh, tools around in Service Bus. You know, in Service Bus is kind of like the the core runtime environment. These additional apps around it, you know, targeted more towards developers or administrators mm. uh, to again to kind of see what's going on in a system built around in Service Bus. Very cool. So the all the infrastructure code. So they and and you um you you interface both with the developer side and the IT side. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, so, so you have to have tools on both sides of that, uh, right. you know, DevOps story. Now, uh, this, if you're looking at service bus technology, obviously end service bus isn't the only thing out there. I mean, you know, if you're in the cloud, you're looking at the Azure offerings and, you know, mm-hmm. probably on the listener's mind is what makes end service bus different? Why, you know, what, what should I, why should I be considering it? So the thing about in-service bus is that we've designed it to be really pluggable. So you can run it on top of uh, Azure Service Bus in the cloud. You can run it on top of MSMQ and RabbitMQ and ActiveMQ and just about every technology that has an MQ at the end of it. Uh, you can plug in underneath in-service bus. Uh, we also support running on top of just regular SQL databases. So we use tables as queues as well because we know a lot of people, um, they're just you know, their IT guys are not thrilled about standing up yet another piece of infrastructure saying, look, we've worked hard enough to make our SQL database, you know, reliable and fault tolerant and scalable. Mm -hmm. You know, that's what we know. That's what we understand. Don't, don't bring any of this crazy message queuing technology in. So developers can continue working with 
asynchronous invocation patterns at their coding level, meaning that everything's still loosely coupled and service oriented. But from an infrastructure perspective, everything's just sitting in your database. I see. And that's true. Whether you're deciding I want to run, you know, in my own data center on my own database or potentially running in the cloud. So you could be, you know, just rewire this to SQL Azure and you're good to go. So you so, have basically decoupled the service bus architecture from every underlying and overlying technology. So if we decide to go within service bus, we don't have to worry about our code breaking anytime in the future if we want to change anything that's going on under the hood. Well, absolutely. Another thing around the, the, the cloud type of scenario that you're talking about, uh, we've done some some pretty nifty work around the platform as a service area uh, where, you know, as people who are in this area know, uh, each one of these worker roles ends up being fairly expensive. So you don't want to have a whole bunch of them. Uh, so we've built up a shared hosting model that allows you to take a whole bunch of logically independent endpoints and have them in the same worker role in a fairly transparent manner, which saves people who are running in the cloud a fair chunk of change. Uh, and the second thing, uh, with regard to Azure Service Bus, uh, so when you're working with Azure Service Bus, it's, uh, you know, when you look for a message in, uh, in a topic, every single time that you're looking for a message, you're paying for it. So we've built in this type of back off, uh, behavior that if your code looks for a message and there isn't one there, say, you know what, let's actually delay a little bit before looking again. So you don't end up spending a whole lot of money because you've got a whole lot of endpoints that potentially could receive a message, but none of them currently are because the load on your system is spiky. So things like that allow people to, to optimize for cost when they're running on the cloud, which is fairly nice. You know, I'm laughing because you, you know, the idea that people would feel like a SQL server table is more reliable than a message queue. Well, you know, um, some people are used to doing things a certain way and there's right. only a certain number of battles that you're going to win in a given day. So, you know, like, well, let's, well, and let's why have that fight when you can completely abstract it. A message it, goes out, it's reliable, it's somewhere and you can change configuration and put it somewhere else. Exactly. I love that. That's really wicked. And like you said, it does one thing to store it in the, in the database, another thing to store it in a queue on your machine, which really means just writing it to disk. There's no more voodoo than that. Or fire it into the cloud. The behavior is going to be the same. Pretty simple, huh? Well, they say you are the software simplest, so I guess. <laughs> <laughs> the thing that's interesting about this is that the it's the interplay that's the important part. Like, you don't I can't, it's so rare for folks to actually say, I'm going to need a bus. It's only right. when I get into a certain amount of trouble that I start thinking, damn, I should have had a bus. Well, that's the thing. I think there's a certain bit of, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the keep it simple, agile mentality, you aren't going to need a type of deal. Uh, unfortunately, that causes a lot of uh, the same sort of infrastructure to be rebuilt by uh, multiple projects over and over again. And I guess it's one of those things that, uh, you know, once you try it, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm not going back. It just doesn't make <laughs> sense. Uh, but, you know, getting people over that initial hump to try it 
uh, is a little bit tricky, uh, especially when, you know, well, you know, I'm already using web API for this bit, then why wouldn't I use it everywhere? Um, it's, it, it's hard to, to, to have those arguments with people that haven't felt the pain yet. So, uh, I say that there's no shot, uh, for experience. You, you have to go through the pain the first time, uh, to be able to say, you know what, I really don't want to go through that again. Yeah, it, it, is that the only way? But you still have the question of what's the architectural stimulus that says, oh, we better get a bus here? Because I don't think you want a bus in every app. Or do you? Well, so one of the, the examples that I give people of uh, how their systems are already doing asynchronous type of work is around batch jobs. You know, almost every system uh, that's been built has some ancillary batch jobs around it that once a day are poking down into the database and looking for, for stuff and then taking action based on that. In essence, what's happened is they are using their database as a queuing system. So you have some part of the system that's putting something in the database, another part of the system that's reading something out sometime later, taking right. action on that, putting stuff back into the database that the first part of the system is going to read back out. So they end up creating a queued type invocation model around their database, again, w without really knowing that that's what they're doing, uh, creating a lot of code fragmentation and, uh, you know, just problematic implementation of, uh, I, I don't even know how, how to describe it. I, the issue with batch jobs, I think it's, uh, it, it's very pernicious, is that they're always viewed as, look, I've got this tiny little problem and I got to solve it. Right. So I'm going to take this junior programmer who doesn't know the rest of the system and say, here, you know, peek down into this database, muck around, do this, and then you're done. And so a lot of, uh, a lot of code ends up just sort of happening without really anybody thinking about what's the right way to do this and how, how logically related is this code over here to the rest of the code that we have over there? Uh, usually doesn't have unit tests there. You know, it, it's just code that sort of happens over the lifetime of a system. Um, and so, so when people say, well, you wouldn't use uh, service bus technology for, for every system. I'm like, well, you kind of are without even <laughs> noticing that you're doing it. Uh, you're just kind of doing a poor job about it. So right. uh, in that sense, I'd say it's probably more applicable to more systems than most people would realize. Um, and that there are probably you know, fewer systems that, that it's not really uh, th that suited for. So one environment, you say, well, okay, so what's the, what's the case where you say a service bus wouldn't be useful? Well, I say, well, if your entire intention is to run your entire system on a single monolithic machine, then maybe service bus technologies are not the best thing for you. Um, you know, there, there are some domains where, uh, where they do that, for example, high frequency trading, right? Where, you know, every microsecond of latency counts matters. And, you know, they're, they're really eking out every single little bit of performance. Uh, though I, you know, there are lots of people in the finance domain that are latency sensitive and I say, you know, 
we're not going to use and service bus with MSMQ underneath it. We're going to do it on top of named pipes. Right. So they plug in a named pipes implementation and there you go. Now you've got, you know, multi-process single machine, relatively low latency, um, working out pretty well. But well, you know, it's interesting because the the end service bus approach is very reliable, but I think it's also its focus is on scalability, not necessarily performance. It actually considers scalability more important than performance, where you get those free high frequency trading guys where performance is the only thing. I think that's that's a problem with the word performance. We need to be more specific. It's yeah. latency that they care about. Right. Uh, you know, lots of developers care about performance. Yeah, well, everybody thinks they do. The question is, what's the priority for, for list? It. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. So I'd say that for the vast majority of systems out there, uh, latency, uh, so the time it takes to deliver something from point A to point B, mm. whether that takes you know two milliseconds or five milliseconds is not really the biggest deal in the world. No. Um, and most business logic tends to take longer than that anyway. So I guess I'd say this, you know, if you're in a domain where you can use a relational database, in other words, the latency of talking to a remote database machine is acceptable for you, then service bus technology is not going to be a performance issue for you right, at right. all. Uh, if anything, I'd say that for most of those systems, it actually improves their performance because it offloads their database. Right. Well, and all, I think the big thing for me is that as the number of users increases, it stays steady. It is very scalable. So it may not be the yes. fastest in total number of milliseconds than a bare metal approach, but as soon as you had a few more users running, it still keeps going, and your better metal approach starts to struggle. Absolutely. And you, um, you have no problem setting up multiple instances and keeping things synchronized between them, right? I mean, if is that how you scale out and and service bus? Absolutely. It's a, it's a fairly simple model. Uh, you, you just kind of take the same instance of code and you deploy it to another machine. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it's just like a single line of configuration that you're setting to say that, okay, this, this isn't the master node if you're using a type of master worker model. Uh, but if you're using, say, uh, a more traditional broker-type infrastructure, uh, say, RabbitMQ or ActiveMQ, uh, you don't even need any configuration changes. Mm -hmm. So it really is a tiny little matter to, to go from one machine to five machines to ten machines. Right. Usually what I tell people, they say, look, before you do that, if you think you're having scalability problems, uh, check that your database isn't the bottleneck. Because right. nine times out of ten... Adding more boxes in front of your database is it's not going to help you right. because you're just, you know, the transactions that you're doing are too big. They're taking too long. Right. Uh, so putting more workers, I mean, the, the workers are not your limiting factor. Uh, it's, you know, your business logic. It's the transactions. It's what you're doing against the database. Optimize that first. And, you know, after you've got that to the ultimate level of performance, then, okay, start scaling out. Um, uh, but people tend to view this, this scale-out thing as sort of a silver bullet. Of, I'm having performance problems. Okay, just stick a whole bunch more nodes in there. Right. Sometimes they're surprised that that doesn't actually help. Yeah. Uh, again, because oftentimes the bottlenecks of the database. Well, it's because you can't scale out a database very easily. 
Well, uh, the, the the NoSQL camp might have something to say about that. Yeah, that's uh, true. Remember your audience, Rich. <laughs> well, no, I didn't think when I said when I'm saying database, I am meaning a relational database. Yeah. But that's always been the sort of linchpin. Is here we are talking about scaling everything out. Then you get to the database, like no, we just scale that up. Yeah. So, um, let me bring up SignalR for a minute because you know one of the one of the really cool things you can do with that is use a, a service bus as a backplane. To, uh, you know, to support some really highly scalable messaging across these clients, uh, you know, and the clients can be phones and web pages and anything that supports a browser. Do you have customers that are using uh, N-Service Bus as a SignalR backplane? Well, a lot of customers are using the two of them together. Uh, you know, when you're building a, a, a service-oriented, event-driven type system, uh, the the opportunities to use a technology like SignalR to take all of these backend events and then push them all the way to the users uh, just you know grows by at least an order of magnitude. So uh, I, I really see SignalR and uh, service bus technologies as uh, complementing each other quite a bit. It's not just the backplane thing. The backplane thing is just to make sure that SignalR is going to work well in a web form type of setup. Mm. Uh, but you know, if you're saying, look, I'm building a traditional end tier type architecture and I want to stick signal R in there and make sure that that works in my web farm. Well, I mean, yeah, you could use and service bus as the backplane, but you're kind of, you know, if your entire architecture is synchronous mm. and users are blocked waiting for a response, there's not going to be much for you to do with signal R. Mm-hmm. So you know, the more service-oriented you go, the more event-driven you go, the more, uh, you know, publish-subscribe patterns start to make sense, the more technologies like in-service bus help you out a lot, the more things you will be able to push back via SignalR to your users. And absolutely, you can use in-service bus as a, as a backplane to SignalR. It, it does that beautifully. Uh, but I, I guess the thing that I'd say is, that shouldn't be the reason why you go to use uh, any service bus technology is to make SignalR scale out. No, I get you. So, uh, it's the fact that, well, actually, we can have, uh, you know, just like that article you were mentioning uh, before, Richard, uh, saying, well, we'd like to communicate the status of a long-running process. Yeah. Well, you know, um, service buses are great ways of building those types of event-driven, long-running processes that can also scale out across multiple machines. And then, you, you know, as something happens, you just ping back, web server subscribes to that and filters that back via signal R to the user. So it's a, it's a really great model. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out how these things would work together and then trying to write code in my brain, in my head, behind <laughs> my eyes, which never works when I'm talking to people. But uh, uh, so I suppose that, you know, if you have a, a SignalR hub right there in the hub, instead of doing your publish to all right there, that's when you would go out to the service bus and then the service bus would broadcast the architecture. Is that how it works or is it the other way around? So it would tend to be the other way around. What you'd have is you have you know some backend process, uh, uh, a, a batch job, for example, say uh, an account was flagged for fraud or a customer status has changed or something's happening in the backend uh, and an event is published. And so what you have is you have your web server subscribe to that event 
And then when it's processing that event, one of the things that it does is it turns around and uses a SignalR hub to push that out to the browser. Okay. So that's at the high level how it would work. The difference would be how you configure SignalR itself to use and service bus as its backplane. Again, for the purposes of scaling out, that's a separate internal type of SignalR configuration thing as opposed to the larger architectural story. Does that make sense? Yep. Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to queue up a message of dumbness to be delivered to all our listeners synchronously. <laughs> Well, it's good that it's asynchronous. No, it's synchronously. Oh, no. Well, at least they get it all at once. (laughs) (laughs) No, no. It's actually time to give away a D-Experience subscription from DevExpress to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who the winner is, let's talk about the uh, D-Experience subscription. You want to become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries, and deliver elegant.NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? And the winner is Jared McGuire. Congratulations, Jared. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Jared McGuire. He just won the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress. That's a $2,000 value from them. If you don't know what we're talking about here, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. Every show, we give away great sponsor stuff like the DevExpress D Experience subscription. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the fan club. We've done it twice already. And we'd like to ask our guests, Udi, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? That's a hard one uh, because, you know, I got a whole bunch of tech. Uh, but I, I guess the, 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 the latest thing that I saw that I'd get excited about is the, the, the Oculus virtual reality. Nice. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, to... To, to, to totally immerse yourself. I mean, you know, we've all seen the virtual reality stuff, you know, the, the sci-fi stuff from so long ago, but to actually see that happening now and use that, I don't know how much it costs or whether they ship to Israel, but you know, th- that would be my pick for, for a toy. Nice, big, expensive, fun toy. They're not that expensive though. They th- Have you tried one? I, I haven't. I don't know how much they are. <laughs> Actually, the developer kit is only $350. And that's not even the production unit, right? The production unit will be even less than this. This is for developers to build products with it. Wow. So, you know, it's in the price range already of being a monitor. And that, to me, is really interesting, you know, that that we could see this thing everywhere. And now they're owned by Facebook, so what could go wrong? (laughs) Yeah, huh? Anyway, I'm a fan, but you need to spend more money because you can't wear oh, 10 I, of these things. I can't wear 10 of these things. Damn. Uh, hmm. That's a problem. I mean, you know, I, I, I splurged on, on, on hardware all the time. So oh, it's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
it's uh, it's kind of hard to think of something that that, that kind of would be uh, uh, would be significant. So if it's not virtual reality, I got to say the next thing would probably be uh, you know a big ass drone type thing like uh, you know the type that, that that you know like how Amazon did their whole you know Christmas uh, story around. You can actually pick up boxes and fly yeah. them over somebody's head and drop it on them. Um, so not like those dinky little helicopters, but, you know, nice big quadcopter, uh, hooked up to like a virtual reality headset. You know, if somebody hadn't, hasn't invented that yet. Then what is I'd the, what's the new drone that, uh, it's about 1300 bucks, Richard. I think I sent you a link to it. That's, uh, that has a camera, uh, gimbal in it now that, uh, it stabilizes. DIJ Phantom 2. That's it. DIJ. Yeah. Just uh, Google it and look at the YouTube videos. And so it it's kind of has that fisheye lens like the GoPro has. So it's not like really high quality. And it does 1080p at 30 frames a second. So it does look like video. It's not like going to be film quality. But as soon as we can get a really good, you know, but the gimbal is amazing. So it does stabilization, you know, so you can send it up and do do these amazing shots where you're sweeping around like a camera on a dolly except you're in the air so you get great shots but i'm waiting for you know when we can hook a either a dslr camera or something that can record with a decent lens at at uh 1080 24p well i remember that um that crazy uh was an octocopter, octocopter or a sectocopter that we saw mm-hmm. at the Titanic display in Belfast. Yeah. And it had was had a, a big Canon SLR hanging underneath it. It was super stable. Yeah. And in serious wind, as I recall, yeah. too. Yeah. But I bet you that thing's over five grand, but it's in the ballpark. Yep. It's getting there, yeah. So this yeah. one we're talking about is the DJI Phantom 2 Vision Two. Plus. With uh, $1,300, Yeah, $1,300, and it's got a three-axis gimbal. Yeah, it's that's cool stuff. Cool stuff indeed, and good for Signal R too. You know that would be fun to communicate with that thing. Oh my god! R. Now you're just teasing me. <laughs> now we were talking to Norwegians about that way back when too, right? Yeah. Uh, and I do want to talk more about Signal R in the context of in service bus because I think if I'm understanding you, uh, Udi, it's just another transport, effectively. Pretty much. Yeah. yeah. So name pipes, TCP/IP, you know, like the signal arch is more of the same, except that it's got a great interface to the browser, so that you can have this really nicely interactive behavior. I think the next step up is going to be as uh, as HTML5 gets uh, more broadly integrated and people start to leverage it a bit more. Uh, HTML5 has a has meaningful, durable local storage built into it. So you could actually do store and forward communication from the browser, you know, out to your servers and then back the other way, being able to survive restarts and and all sorts of things like that. We're we're very much on the cusp of this going everywhere. Yeah. Uh, So it's not just, you know, where would you use a service bus? It's a where would you not (laughs) <laughs> well, I also think part of this is that we have enough horsepower now that the little bit of overhead that a service bus adds to us is just not that big a deal. Yeah, definitely. But it does bring up the biggest issue, which is just how hard is it to refit an app with a service bus after the fact? Mm. Well, you know, like I was saying before, by by leveraging uh, a SQL database as a transport, you've kind of really brought down the 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 deployment headache 
of introducing something like an service bus. Right. Uh, the second bit I'd say that I recommend people say, well, you know, just look at your batch jobs and instead of using a database to, to kind of shovel stuff around, make that explicit as a message. Uh, so you don't have to retrofit your entire system in one go. You kind of work around the edges and start introducing it in various places. Uh, if you need to send email, lots of systems are sending email. Uh, that's a great asynchronous one-way type process that you can make more reliable uh, so that, you know, if an SMTP server flakes out, email still gets sent. Right. Uh, report generation, PDFs, all that kind of stuff. You know, th there's really, it's just out there for the picking. Like, here you go, there's another one, another one, another one. Um, start there. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, get, get used to the, the programming model. It's not really that difficult. Uh, and before you know, you're going to be like, hey, you know, we can do this over here and we can kind of refactor this bigger business process into smaller asynchronous chunks. So we get better performance and we get uh, more loosely coupled code. And so it, it's not that kind of a, you know, oh, my God, how am I going to have to rebuild my app around this? Uh you can take it bit by bit and, you know, every agile iteration, you kind of bite off another little chunk. Sure. Yeah. And get bit piece by piece in there. I think that the tougher architectural pattern is going to this queued model of essentially one way messaging. And how do you, if you're used to just getting immediate responses from your calls, how do you refactor things to deal with that being a more asynchronous delayed behavior? Well, I'm, I'm not going to be the one to say that, you know, every single uh, simple bit of crud that you're doing needs to be rebuilt around asynchronous communication. I mean, if all of your logic is, you know, do some fairly basic va input validation and then persist it to a database to read it out from the database afterwards. Right. Say, so, you know, don't stick a service bus in there of, of <laughs> any kind, not end service bus, not Azure service bus, no, not MSMQ. Uh, but by the same token, I'd say, you know, don't go putting five different layers and three different tiers behind that. Of, well, wait a minute, I need to have uh, a view model and then I need to have data transfer objects and then I need to have domain models and then I need to you know, just throw all that crap out. Uh, and just get on with it, really. Uh, sometimes I, I, I kind of go to uh, old school uh, .NET. I say, you remember data sets? And some people are like, no, you're joking. I said, no, remember how productive those things were? If you just needed to get a simple flat piece of data out of a right. database, into the UI, make some modifications, send it back again. Mm. If all you need to do is to send over five strings and two ends, in just sort of a flat structure, uh, do that. Like, no, we couldn't possibly go back to data sets. Well, I, but, you know, to get in that mindset of don't go writing lots of code where you don't need to. Right, which uh, is not a big deal. Yeah. And for those areas where you do have more complex business logic, uh, that it's not just sort of simple, stupid crud, you know, that's where there, there are greater opportunities to introduce it. So it's not necessarily meant to be an every single use case, do everything with it all the time type of deal. Uh, because as we all know, there's no silver bullet, right? Yep. So there's, there's always choices there. Absolutely. So, uh, Udi, let's come back to the, the differences between end service bus and, 
in Azure Service Bus. Um, you know, if I've got my database in Azure and I've got all my code and maybe my web servers and all that stuff up there, it's awfully tempting to just press a button and implement a service bus. And uh, I'm, I, I, I'm just, you know, try to convince me a little bit more about. Um, I mean, I love the idea that you you have this pluggable um, architecture that I don't have to worry about. Um, you know, the underlying infrastructure. Is that the major difference between, you know, hooking my wagon to Azure Service Bus or any of these other things? Do If I hook my wagon to Azure Service Bus and at some time in the future we decide that's not working for us and we we have to, uh, you know, you, you, we want to utilize some other, I don't know, some other mechanism for storage or, or for or for whatever, we, we're going to have to rewrite our code? Well, that's definitely one of them. Uh, so one of the things that we support, as well as Azure Service Bus, is Azure Storage Queues. Uh, and it turns out that a lot of people are actually, um, you know, they prefer to start out with the storage queues before moving to Azure Service Bus. So that's one element of it. It's you know, whichever piece of infrastructure you want to use, you can retain the same programming model with N-Service Bus and start with one because its cost profile is more attractive to you and then later on switch to another one. Um, but I, I guess I'd say that's sort of, uh, you know, part of a, a larger story of N-Service Bus. Our value proposition has always been around developer productivity. So we're more focused on the API that a developer would use to write their business-centric code rather than the under, you know, the, the, the bottom level of the, the plumbing. So when it comes to building the types of long-running processes that we were talking about before, and Service Bus has a built-in facility that we call Sagas that allows you to write very nice, simple, unit-testable, time-driven processes out in the cloud. So you could have something that... Uh, so let, let's take the, uh, the the common situation of users logging in. Uh, most people think, yeah, they're, they're, there's no reason to use a service bus over there, whether it's on the cloud or off. But a lot of times, for security reasons, you have this functionality that says, look, if you have three failed login attempts within a certain period of time, an account needs to be locked for 24 hours. Okay. That's a great type of model that you could use in service bus sagas to implement. So while you're using sort of the generic messaging to say, okay, look it up, that was a failed login, look it up, that was another failed login, you can actually build this type of state machine in in service bus that, you know, on every one of these messages coming in, it says, oh, yeah, that was number one. Let's open up a timeout uh, to see if number two and number three will come in in this time window. Uh, and here we're not talking about, you know, a system threading timer that, you know, a single machine goes down and your business logic's broken. Mm. Uh, you just you know, use a very simple semantic saying, hey, request a timeout. Uh, wake me up in 24 hours, five hours, whatever it is. Uh, count the messages that are coming through. All of that gets persisted uh, totally transparently for you. Uh, and again, you know, if the, the account needs to get locked, you publish an account locked event, uh, open up another timeout. And then when that time expires, publish an account unlocked event. And again, you're doing this in a, in a you know, nice, plain old C sharp, totally decoupled from 
Azure Service Bus or storage queues or SQL Azure, or all of those infrastructure pieces. You can unit test that logic without having to fiddle around with time yourself. Mm. You can just sort of poke it and say, okay, you know, first time windows up, second time windows up, assert that the right messages are coming out of this object. So it really makes it quite a bit easier to write these types of multi-message flows than, I mean, not to say that you couldn't build it before, but, you know, otherwise what you do is you'd have, you know, the, 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 the failed login attempt, go to the database and say, okay, mark this account as locked for a certain period of time. Then you'd have some other back end batch job pinging your database once an hour, once a day said, okay, go look through all of the locked accounts and then unlock them at the right point in time. You know, you're just yeah. fragmenting your logic, right? Then you're going to change something over here. You're going to forget something over there. Uh, unit testing is not going to be particularly fun because everything is so tied to your underlying database. Mm. Um, so it's those sorts of things that, uh, you know, the more you delve into more interesting business logic, uh, these are the kinds of facilities that Azure Service Bus, not only doesn't it have, it's not, they're, they're not intending to build it because, sure. you know, it, it's up there in the business logic. That's an area that we've been focusing on fairly intensively for a good long time because we know when people are building these systems on top of various types of service bus technology, they invariably end up building, you know, these sorts of features. Right. And there isn't a lot of guidance on how to do that the right way. How do you manage time the right way? Well, those I mean, are yeah, plumbing features, right? That's, that's you know, the, and, and if you think about it, it's ironic because those are the kinds of things that Microsoft typically does well are, is plumbing stuff. But, uh, but uh, I, I, you've sold me, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm convinced. Well, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, you could combine that with, again, the, the monitoring tools that I was talking about before that, you know, it allows you to visualize all of the message flows that came through your system to have that fully correlated so that when you're saying, okay, show me this specific, you know, why was this account locked? And you'll be able to trace back from the account locked event to the state machine to the three login failure messages wow. uh, makes it really easy to see why the system is behaving the way that it is. We also have production monitoring so that if one of your nodes went down or is not uh, handling messages correctly, you know that Im immediately appears in, in a nice admin dashboard. So there's, That's I, very I, cool. I guess we fill in all of the things where the existing tooling leaves off. Right. Uh, we're not going to write a better, more scalable service bus infrastructure than what Microsoft did with Azure Service Bus. That's a big, hairy problem to solve, and they've done a great job around it. But the thing that that, that we and me personally, you know, my core competency is building systems on top of this sort of infrastructure yeah. and seeing where people run into trouble and what sorts of tooling and what sort of APIs are they missing and where do they get hung up. You know, yeah, that's where that, that's where we come in and say, hey, you know, let's make your life a little bit easier because it's not just about plumbing. Uh, if anything, you know, to, to take this plumbing metaphor to its dirty conclusion, uh, you could kind of compare that between, say, American toilets and Japanese toilets. You need uh, an adapter. <laughs> Right. So the, the Japanese toilet is the full blown amazing experience. But you <laughs> full, know, full blown, I think, is describes it. Yeah. There you go. Uh, 
Have to end with a toilet joke, right? <laughs> my $1,000 toilet seat. I think Richard has one in his house, don't you, Richard? Yes, I do. Oh, my God. You know what? It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I, I've experienced one before. Yeah, it is awesome. But but so you, you can really think of end service bus as a sort of an adapter on top of your service bus technology then that gives you all this great insight and gives you all this adaptability and pluggability. Is that is that a fair statement? I guess I'd say that uh, an service bus is the kind of infrastructure that you would build yourself on top of whatever you know, whether it's Azure Service Bus or Service yeah. Bus for Windows Server. Uh, you know, Microsoft does a great job in these types of foundational technologies yeah. that are lowest common denominator, really address everybody's needs. But ultimately, you know, every project ends up building their own infrastructure layer. Yep. But you know, you never have the time to test it as well as you'd like. You sure. never have the time to implement all of the kind of visualization and support tools for your DevOps folks. So it's the kind of tools that you would write if you had the time to actually build them. Yeah, uh, it's the same reason we have things like MVVM Cross. You know, when people go to do um, MVVM with, uh, you know, Xamarin's tools or, you know, to try to do something that works across all of these uh all these mobile development devices, they invariably end up writing what what Stuart's done with MVVM Cross. And we hear this over and over again. And after a while, it's just like, yeah, you know, I should have just got that and saved myself a lot of headache. It's the kind of thing you don't know you're going to need until you need it. Yeah. 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 Now, another thing, again, back on the whole issue of testability, we've been, you know, really investing a huge amount in terms of uh, testing. So every single release that we put out, we're testing it with, you know, every single container that people are using on .NET. So Ninject and Autofac and Unity and Structure Map and, you know, so every single one of those things is tested. Whether you're using MSMQ or Azure Service Bus or Storage Queues or RabbitMQ, that's tested. Whether you're running on, you know, Windows Server 2008 R2, Windows Server 2012, mm. you know, whatever version of an Hibernate you're using, every single combination is is tested. So that when we say this works, it really does work and is backwards compatible with every single previous version that we've put out in the past two years, which is how far back we go, because there's only <laughs> there's only so many machines we can spin up on, on the cloud at one mm. time without going broke. Right. And speaking of going broke, how much does it cost? Uh. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, so the, the, the answer to that is both very simple and very complicated. Okay. The simple, the simple answer is that because people are using in service bus in just about every single domain that you could imagine, whether it's uh, barges that are going up and down the Mississippi or trucks or trains that are reporting their status to software as a service company, everybody has their own type of environment. So the answer is there is a flexible model that is catered to your needs. Okay. Uh, and the, the, the next part of that is for small startups that you know, don't yet uh, have a very strong revenue model, it's free. So, you know, if you're not making money off of your business yet, you know, you're not going to have to pay anything for it. Just start using it. Great. 
And where can we get more information, Udi? So you can go to inservicebus.com or the brand new Fancy Dancy website with all of the, 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 the great explanations about all of the tools that make up this platform. That's particular.net. Particular.net. That's right. Awesome. Dude, you just keep on surprising us. Thank you. That's what I'm here for. All right. Thanks again, Udi. It's been great talking to you. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Richard. Batman. All right. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by Thomas.